Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on this channel. Today we are speaking with Joe Cohen about his new book, Financial Crisis in American Households, The Basic Expenses That Bankrupt the Middle Class. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, I was hoping you could start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm uh, I'm an associate professor of sociology at uh, Queens College in the City University of New York. And uh, I uh, completed my doctorate at Princeton, and I'm originally uh, from Canada. Uh, I've been here maybe since 2000, so coming up 17 years in the United States. And uh, most of my work is involves, you know, comparing uh, the policies and, uh, you know, the economic fortunes of regular people, comparing uh, Canadians and Americans, middle class people. So... Um, you know that's what I do. That's where I'm at, and uh, I uh, I run a, a, a sociology theme podcast myself. Uh, if your uh, listeners are interested in more podcasting, check us out. The Annex Sociology Podcast is what we're called, and uh, you can, yeah, on 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 iTunes and Google Play. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> the commercials are always uh, fun to give, but it's a great podcast. I enjoy listening to it myself. Um, so, so um, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about how this book came about for you? Like what happened that uh, made you want to write this or just, you know, sort of the event that started it? Sure, sure. It's, you know, this is one of those things where I was working on, you know, that big paper that I thought was going to be so important and uh, I was just fiddling with some data on the side and um, I uh, found a, a neat little finding uh, about household spending and just where Americans were spending more of their money and I wrote a little paper about it and sent it off to the ASAs while I continued to work on you know some big what I thought was important paper that still isn't finished and I'm doubting it ever will be. So I uh, in the meantime, I sent out this paper and uh, to the uh, consumers and consumption section of uh, the ASA for the annual meetings, and they included my paper in a, uh, a showcase of papers that were being presented in the ASAs. And I was grateful that they did that. And some journalists started picking up on, on, on the findings of this paper. Uh, basically, what the paper uh, did was it looked at uh, data from the America's Consumer Expenditure Survey. That's a, uh, uh, a diary survey where people track where they uh, spend their money and how much they spend, and they uh, and analysts use it to just get a sense of you know the structure of household spending and, and you know things like that. And uh, what I did was I took a look at the data to figure out you know where. Uh, people are spending their money, and I was uh, I was uh, very much uh, into this whole notion of consumerism and uh, the idea that capitalism. You know that there's that line that uh, we've all heard. You know, capitalism gets people to buy things that they don't need, and you know, to keep the engine running and immiserate the population, things like that. And and when I looked at the uh, when I looked at the data, uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't uh, much growth in spending across most product categories. And I found that a lot of the spending uh, that accounts for the growth of, uh, you know, American household spending was uh, on uh, a certain set of products. There was uh, housing, uh, the physical location, the structure of the housing, 
uh, education, healthcare. Uh, well, those were the three big ones. And then there's some smaller ones that have less impact on household budgets. And, uh, you know, I had trouble getting my head around that. You know, when you have a, a finding and you expect to find something else and at the beginning, not finding that people were frittering away their money on cell phones and electronics was a source of frustration. But as I said, I, uh, I, uh, I'm Canadian and I've come into contact a few times with American healthcare. And even though I, I have insurance, uh, you know, I've just gotten staggering bills. You know, for the birth of your child, it's very expensive for for those of your listeners that aren't in the United States. Routine things like, uh, you know, uh, basic diagnostics or uh, the delivery of a baby or small small procedures. You know, if if you run into one healthcare provider that isn't on your plan, you could be out thousands of dollars. And it occurred to me that um, healthcare and education to two areas of spending that are, are very, very expensive in the United States compared to Canada. Uh, the, what, what might be uh, driving that, sh- those, uh, that rising spending is, is increased prices. We know that cost of education is spiraling up, as is uh, health care. We don't notice that these types of, of expenses happen because they happen once in a while. And we see them as sort of like a one in a million or like a long shot or a, a turn of bad luck, but not our normal economic circumstances. But what happens is over the course of people's life cycles, you do get big bills, medical bills and big educational bills, and those can have lasting consequences. So that that's where the idea came from, and uh, as is always the case, I was very proud of my finding, and then I found out that Elizabeth Warren had actually uh, published a book earlier in some papers that uh, found the same thing. So it wasn't really something that I discovered, but it was an idea that resonated with the uh, the media in the year that I presented at the ESA, and I was lucky enough to have uh, some stories written about the paper, and then I... I had people approach me about writing a book and I wrote with uh, wrote it with Prager, my publisher. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, what, I, what I found interesting of it uh, is this idea that, you know, there are a lot of media stories where it's like, oh, people are just out of control with their iPhones. Like, I don't know, the iPhone just seems like the easy target here. Um, yeah. But it's like they're out of control buying new iPhones all the time. And I mean, yeah, sure, some people are, but I felt like I mean, that's what sort of makes this a true blue sociology book, right, is you're arguing sort of that, like, we have to also look at the structural and systemic issues that are happening here, that it's not so much just, you know, people are responding to the systems as well. I'm sorry, you're cycling in and out, so I, I, I might, might be a problem with uh, my connection or my headphones. Yeah, well, you know, that that's something that people argue all the time. Or the other one that you hear a lot about is Starbucks, right? You know, why is everybody buying fancy coffees? And if only poor people would stop buying iPhones and lattes, they would be, uh, you know, they'd be able to save some money and scratch their way out of poverty. But really, you know, a I remember, well, if you, you know, uh, think of a uh, health health insurance plan. It's like $800 a month to, to cover a young couple. I remember that's what I was on when I was on Cobra. Uh, when I was changing jobs, I, and this was this was maybe uh, ten years ago, I uh, moved from Temple University to Queens College, and I remember I had to pay Cobra. And for me and, and my wife at the time, we were young. It was eight hundred dollars a month. That's a lot of coffees every month, or that that's a fresh iPhone. You know, you'd have to buy twelve iPhones a year, brand new iPhones a year, to uh, you know 
to measure up to your uh, very expensive and increasingly expensive uh, healthcare plan. Well, I actually had my first Canadian because uh, I just moved to Canada from the states, so I just had my first Canadian healthcare experience, uh, and uh, it was interesting because you know they were going through my medical history and stuff, and and uh, for instance, I have colon cancer in my his- in my family, so I have to get tested. And it was interesting because I told the doctor about this and she was like, just out of curiosity, how much did you pay for that? And I told her and she was like, oh, no, it would be free here. And it just was sort of <laughs> you know, a classic <laughs> example of just like she just couldn't believe that it cost me money to get something so preventative and um, important in my own uh, history. So, yeah, you know, it's a, to a Canadian, I think it's a lot like asking somebody to pay to send their kid to grade one, you know, or to pay money to get access to the fire department. Like it's seen as like a basic, uh, uh, you know, sort of basic infrastructure and necessary service uh, like K-12 education here, like policing services. But in the United States, it's treated like a privilege. There's a different cultural understanding, uh, I guess, uh, uh, of these services. Yeah. Well, that's actually something you sort of mentioned in in chapter one is that you note that these costs are rising because they once were public, right? We used to have public pensions. Those are going by the wayside. Um, educational costs are becoming privatized. Um, child care costs. I mean, there's multiple reports on how out of control child care costs are. Um, so I was hoping you could talk more about that sort of like, you know, I, I think I wrote down this idea that like the free market failed regarding basic costs. So I was hoping you could start us off with that. Yeah, you bet. So overall, the free market has done wonderful things for uh, American living standards. But in these specific markets, they have not performed well. And one of the differences between the American government and uh, a lot of other societies is the American government doesn't have a strong commitment to universal access to quality basic necessities. So the cost of educating people and the cost of healthcare have risen. Like the Canadian government wrestles with it. The American government wrestles with it. Oh, you know, societies wrestle with it. In Canada, though, it is understood that the government is going to find a way to make sure that the burden of those rising costs do not fall on families such that they have to forego health care that they need. And in America, they don't have that same commitment to universal access to quality essentials. Many in American society think of health care as just a regular commercial service and see it as, you know, it's not necessarily the government's job to uh, shield people from rising costs. In fact, the Americans have some type of faith often that through competition and uh, private enterprise innovation, that there'll be some type of wonderful, you know, breakthrough that will make healthcare, education, or any other product dirt cheap. And for most products, or for a lot of products, that's totally work. Food is dirt cheap now. You know, education's very cheap. Or not sorry, uh, not education. Reading materials are very cheap. Entertainment is very cheap. It's just in these specific markets. Well, healthcare and, and education for sure, and housing is a different ball of wax that we could talk about. But healthcare and education, it just hasn't worked that well. It's ended up, you know, costs have been escalating, and they're falling on the consumer's shoulders. And I think there's good reason to believe that people are either foregoing them or burying themselves in a mountain of debt, which has other damaging consequences. Right. You actually mentioned that uh, 
the American Value Survey said that shows that three out of ten people don't go to the doctor because of the costs of it. That that just seems crazy. <laughs> it, well, I mean, what what are what what are your impressions like? What among your Canadian colleagues as an American who moved to the you know that society did it did it seem foreign to you or? Um, I mean, it did just in terms of being a new system to learn. But what, what I sort of thought, you know, like I had to learn how to use the Bureau of Motor Vehicles here and how to get my like OHIP card, the um, Ontario Health Plan. Um, but it's sort of like if you move to a different state, you know, like when I moved to Pennsylvania from Indiana, I still had to learn like that you can't get your license plate the same place you get your license, you know. So it's sort of like it, if you've moved from different states, it sort of struck me like not as too different from that and it wasn't like mind-blowingly different um but it was sort of like oh i gotta get a family doctor or go to a walk-in clinic there's just small things i think that have been an adjustment but like nothing's like you know i mean everybody i just ask people (laughs) in my department and they'll just be like oh you got to do this um you know so it hasn't been too different i don't think but I mean, different in terms of, yes, the systems are, but learning it is mostly just that, you know, like, what do you do to start, I guess. But, um, but yeah, so one of the things uh, as a sociologist and somebody interested in measurement that I want to talk about for a brief moment is this idea that you point out in the first chapter about, and we sort of talked about it with iPhones and, and lattes, um, is this idea of like what people ought to spend their money on. Um, and, and you point out in your book that that matters for how we measure this stuff, right? Like how, what are we measuring? And then are we doing so objectively? Um, I kind of think of the heritage foundation report that was like, poor people have microwaves. And it's like, well, yes, in this day and age, you need a microwave basically, you know, like that, that's not, uh, at least in my personal opinion, that's not like a luxury, right. That's almost a necessity. So, so thinking more about like, how do we measure like what are necessities and what are these, uh, you know, consumer luxuries. So. Yeah, to speak uh, intelligently about, you know, people, you know, necessities or, uh, you know, standards of living, you need to have some conception of what people need and don't need. And there's a lot of subjective judgment involved in that. You know, uh, it might be that I believe that preventative medicine is something that is necessary, but you can absolutely construct a, a viable argument that's, you know, construes uh, preventative medical care is uh, uh, something that is not necessary. Like Americans often say, well, you can go to the emergency room if, for free if you need to. Not for free, but you can go to the emergency room and not give your name and the hotel or the, the hospitals are still compelled to treat you. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a perspective and there's no absolute rule that makes you know my view right and their view wrong. So you have to develop a standard. And the way I think about it is just be open with your readers about what you believe and try to develop something that's reasonable, something that you know isn't, isn't controversial. And what I said all that was anything that was necessary to stay alive or to uh, uh, gain, gain some type of employment or, or, or sustenance so that you can you know, support yourself into the future, get, get your necessities into the future through markets. So things that will are necessary to either get and keep a job, to live indoors, food, uh, uh, you know, uh, clothing, um, things like that. I, I, and so I, I lay out a basket and, uh, and, and that's what I work with. But I think the, the basic message is, is that it's complicated and it's fraught with value judgments. And if you 
But if you develop a reasonable standard and are just explicit about it, uh, I think, you know, readers will make their own judgments. And- right. Well, and I think sort of the middle class is the perfect example of that, right? Because I, th- I think in your book, you note that it ranges from somebody making anywhere from 12000 a year to 700000 a year. But a lot of that is like, well, if you're in New York City versus, you know, uh, Hanover, Indiana, like what the difference of cost of living is and um, things like that. And that's why I feel like the middle class can range so much is because, you know, you have to take into account those those cost of living kind of issues. You know, a lot of people talk about we're in New York City and a lot of people talk about uh, how much more expensive it is uh, to live in New York as opposed to somewhere else. And, you know, there's the I remember I think in the book I cite an article that just knocked my socks off in the New York Times about how it's hard to live on it was written tongue-in-cheek, but how it's hard to live in New York City off of half a million dollars a year. And the thing is, is that the average New Yorker earns like 55 grand a year instead of 45 grand a year. Like New York is overwhelmingly populated by regular people earning five-digit incomes, right? Uh, and those people who earn $150,000 in New York are also privileged, you know, just like somebody earning 150 in Indiana would be. There's a, every, there's a very big pressure for everybody to self-identify with the middle class. Uh, and a lot of people earnestly believe that, the, you know, they're earning 300000 and they're just a regular Joe. But the, the economic challenges that face somebody who earns two three $300,000 a year are about uh, maintaining their privileged position in society. It's not – there's no worry about – Am I going to have a diet or be able to live indoors or, you know, even see a doctor if need be or hire a lawyer? It's more like, can I make sure that I'm still saving enough so that my kids can go to the private school that I aspire to send them to? Or, or you know, can I maintain residency in this really high performing school district that is doing so much better than, you know, regular school districts. It's about maintaining position of privilege rather than worrying about the essentials. And regular people, whether they're in New York City or Indiana, the overwhelming majority of them, I think, are worried about losing their home and not having enough money to, you know, make a down payment on another home or running out of uh, money to cover that bill, just absolutely running out and not being able to get things they need. Mm-hmm. That actually brings up something that you talk about in chapter three, which is that, you know, insecurity is not so black and white. So it's not just like, uh, you know, that this one thing's going to happen. And here you talk about sort of, you know, that there's short term precarious, long term unsustainable, long term sustainable. So I, I thought those were sort of interesting ways to think about it in terms of what is happening. Is somebody having like a medical emergency that bankrupts them? Is that a one time thing? Um, you know, or are they having precarious employment? So I was hoping you could talk more about those like sort of insecurities that play into this. So that chapter starts off by talking about how uh, subjective insecurity, financial insecurity, that means you fe- do you feel financially insecure or not, is not a great guide to anything. There are multimillionaires who feel financially insecure. And in some ways, anxiety about Money can just be a spillover of somebody who's generally anxious, right? There's a lot going on there. But what I try to do in that chapter is establish some more objective standards, you know, uh, standards that we can, uh, you know, identify and discuss and then measure the prevalence of. And 
So I develop a typology of levels of insecurity. And the uh, lowest – so, of course, there are people who are poor and distressed. And the uh, most basic level of uh, insecurity, the highest level of insecurity are people who are economically dependent. So that's people who basically need someone else to help them with the bills. Either it's a welfare program or a government assistance program or help from family or something like that. And a good portion of society, it's like a quarter of society needs help to sustain themselves. And mostly it's uh, – or a lot of it is the elderly who are living off of social security. And there's a big view in uh, in, in American culture that social security isn't government assistance. Like there's this big elaborate sort of you know fiction that there's some type of account that everybody was paying in and you know they're getting their money. They're getting their returns on investments. But – uh, Social Security is just – it's a regular welfare uh, you know, welfare program. It taxes people who are working to give to a certain group that is believed to have difficulty in supporting themselves because they're not able to work. And those are disabled and, and, and uh, elderly people. And so a lot of the elderly – uh, rely on that social security check. They rely on government programs that tax the working age population to keep them afloat. And if they didn't have those programs, they wouldn't be able to afford a basic livelihood on their own. A majority of a majority of elderly people are dependent on the government, and a lot of young people are dependent on their families. So that's economic dependency. That's the most insecure. Another quarter or so of uh, people are uh, are short-term insecure. And those are people who maybe have uh, – they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck or maybe they got one paycheck in the bank. But they could get – these are people who have like their, their – they, they might own a house. They might own a car. But they got 500 to $1,000 in the bank, right? And if they have to do something like make bail or, you know, replace their roof – or something, you know, just one of those routine major multi-thousand dollar expenses that can pop up in life. They don't have the money to cover it. Now, long-term unsustainable is probably another 30%. So we're talking like the median to like the 80th percentile, let's say in rough terms. These are people who do have assets and they, you know, they got a regular job and they got a little bit of money in the bank. But they're mostly invested in their house, and houses are typically poor-performing assets. There was a little boom, but generally, you know, you, the problem with houses is if you sell that asset, you need money and you sell it. Well, where are you going to live, right? Or, you know, so they have cars and they have houses. But what they're not doing is they're not accumulating enough money to not be dependent on the government in old age, right? They don't have a 401k, you know, they don't have an IRA, and there's a a very, very large number of people who think that they're secure, but they don't realize that they are not prepared for sort of that back, you know, the the last the last portion of their life when the, the time between they when they exit the labor market and, and when they pass away. I, I saw a study. I can never remember. I should figure out who it was, but I saw a study a long time ago that asked people if they were getting government assistance. And, and like you said, most people don't see Social Security as government assistance. They don't see things like Pell Grants and um, I think it's the Stafford loans that, you know, um, uh-huh. are, are government assistance. So it was just really kind of um, eye-opening because I think that that's part of the issue is that a lot of times yeah. people don't understand, right? 
totally. It's and it's that's very different from Canada, and I think it's a very politically powerful difference in perspective. In Canada, everybody understands that their healthcare comes from the government, or that you know university is heavily subsidized. So in a sense, regular people see themselves as the beneficiary of public public assistance or social programs. What's happened in the United States is that there's just been this elaborate narrative that has sought to make uh, the social assistance programs that people generally get be construed as, uh, you know, not assistance. And uh, assistance programs have become uh, racialized, like the programs that go to explicitly to the poor are the ones that are more readily identified with the government and are you know more widely opposed in the United States and I think that I think that that has an effect on politics it has an effect of sowing uh, opposition to government programs from those who would benefit from those programs you know I'm thinking of that you know those poor communities where everybody wants to undo the Affordable Care Act even though the Affordable Care Act was giving them you know, subsidized health care. Well, and it's interesting to think um, you sort of move into chapter four in terms of the, what you call the big picture. And I think that this is sort of important, right? Because uh, the first thing you start off with is the exhaustion of the World War II economy. And I feel like that's often used, right? Like, well, we just need to get back to that era. And it's sort of like, well, that era is gone. There were a lot of things happening, um, you know, the, the global competition, the taxes, and the policy were all different because the economy was different at the time. So I was hoping you could sort of talk about these, you know, you mentioned World War II economy, like globalization, technology, um, sort of these these social things that have that have put us in the position where we are now economically. Yeah, so the, the purpose of this chapter is to engage that narrative of why regular Americans aren't doing well. Because uh, – the people uh, were a lot of people enter discussions about why the middle class is struggling with very strongly held preconceived ideas, and often those preconceived ideas have, uh, you know, uh, political ramifications, and often get people uh, in a very partisan or you know simplistic mindset when they're thinking about the problem. And, and what I tried to do here was to uh, communicate that the problems facing the middle class, there it's complicated. There's a lot of them. Uh, government can't solve all of them. Uh, but ultimately, what the government can do is it can help buffer people uh, from from these pressures. So let's start with the pressure. So there's a lot of reasons why the middle class isn't doing well compared to I, – I mean, I don't know when America was supposed to be great, but I guess the golden age, if you look at the data, looks like it was the 50s and 60s. But then you know that – there was a lot going on in the 50s and 60s. Like the rest of the world's economies were completely destroyed and America was pretty much, you know, the last major industrialized economy that wasn't wiped out and it was in a very powerful position and it faced very little competition. And there was a lot of wartime technologies that were converted to civilian use. So there's a lot of great things or economically advantageous things that – you know, they, they weren't going to stay around forever. It's not like Japan and Europe were not going to rebuild. And, and it's a good thing that America and Japan rebuild, rebuild it, you know. Um, it's uh, it, So uh, the end of the sort of the, the 
the bonus that American capitalism enjoyed as a result of having been the last country, last major economic power standing. That's one reason why things aren't as good today as they were several decades ago. Um, there is there are more people who are uh, there are more older people older people people have more money problems there are more people who are living alone uh, which is a predictor of financial difficulty there is globalization and I know that was a, a big thing during the election uh, a lot of people blamed uh, the American workers diminishing for, uh, fortunes on uh, globalization but there's also technological advancement you know a lot of jobs are getting automated or computerized. Uh, there are a lot of factors, but one – so the, what the book concludes with though is that you know some of these factors though might be government policies that are not effectively confronting these bigger picture challenges. So sure, maybe the government can't make the population young and maybe – it's a good thing that people can get divorced or that people aren't you know thrust into families and maybe we don't want to – artificially increase the marriage rate and we don't want to stop technology and you know there's a lot of good reasons to engage in globalization so you know maybe what we have to do is we have to look towards government policies that help you know uh solidify our uh, american regular americans living standards uh to at least buffer us from these shocks and on this front i don't think that the general direction of u.s policy over the past 30 years has done a good job of doing that you know america now has a very big uh poverty problem like an absolute poverty problem it has a a low life expectancy for a wealthy country yeah so i i guess that's the main the main thrust of it was it's not all the government's fault but it, it might be somewhat the government's fault in that they have failed to uh help equip us to deal with the challenges that we face and so this sort of ties into your fifth chapter, which is this idea of this runaway spending, right? Um, but I think the data that you provide yeah. in your tables is pretty convincing that it's not uh, this runaway spending. I, I actually loved this quote that you pulled from somebody else that said, it's it's our Lipitor, not our lattes. Um, I just really liked, yes. liked the sound of that. Um, but yeah, so you point out, you know, that household spending has actually only risen by 6%. Um And that, you know, I mean, if you think about it, because things are cheap, because we've got those Costco jeans, you know, like what is happening if people aren't spending all their money on that? uh, What are they spending their money on? And I think your figures are pretty striking if you want to talk about, you know, the healthcare and childcare and education spending. Yeah. And, and, and housing. Like I think Americans, they don't overspend on housing, but they overinvest on housing. Yeah. But you know what, you know, what's it? so that, that was the, the original paper that I described earlier, but you know, there's an interesting implication to that finding. And it's that if healthcare and if education weren't getting so expensive and if Americans were not paying big welfare penalties by living below their means in terms of housing. Like if bad neighborhoods still had decent schools, right? Uh, It could be that real wages would have been increasing because general living costs would have been falling. Like globalization, automation, those changes have made stuff really cheap. And had we been able to just contain those other costs – it might have been that uh, Americans would have enjoyed a faster rising living standard and we wouldn't have had as stagnant uh, real wages as we as we experienced. Well, because part of the other issue that you bring up here is this, and, and you've mentioned it before, is this idea that it's like, 
are people buying better quality stuff, right? So like you said, are they staying in that really expensive neighborhood because it's tied to the good school or are they sending their kid to the private childcare? Um, so I think that that's sort of an, you know, an interesting way to think about it is like, what are we spending our money on, on these basic, um, these basic costs? Yeah. Yeah. Housing is housing. Uh, that sort of misconception is, is really prevalent where uh, a lot of people think about how houses are big or how uh, we furnish our housing with things that we didn't have. You know, you could imagine an old person saying, why do you need five flat screen TVs? We didn't have it back in the day. But those things are actually cheap, right? Ikea is cheap. I can furnish a home, you know, for far less than I could uh, 30, 40 years ago. I remember, you know, uh, our, our local furniture stores were, were, you know, were higher end and had nicer stuff. We didn't have like $100 dining sets like you have at Ikea. Or, you know, beds that you could just assemble yourself for, you know, the equivalent of today's $150. The What really matters is the location, all right? Real estate's about location, location, location. And it's important for a lot of reasons. One is when you live with richer people, uh, your uh, – well, the, the social services and uh, the local social services generally are better financed because in the United States, a lot of local taxes pay for local services. And some states, like my own state in New Jersey, will try to equalize things. Like they'll make rules where they say a, a wealthy uh, county can spend more per student in their uh, in their school system than uh, a poor county like Newark or Camden. But the thing is, is that poor people need more public resources, right? It's more expensive to give a poor person the equivalent education because, or educational opportunities, because uh, richer people self-finance opportunities. Like uh, in my, I, I live in a better healed community of New, uh, New Jersey in Morris County, and like the parents buy their kids the iPads. They don't need the school to provide them iPads. Yeah, you know, you need that in a in a poor county. So even when you equalize, it's not really equalizing educational opportunities. It's basically equalizing dollar per student spent when the needs are are very different. So you want so there's that. There's uh, the social services, and there's also just the question of you know during the 2008 crisis, poor neighborhoods were more likely to be affected by foreclosures. And uh, were more likely to see uh, their uh, the value of their homes fall, and that's a big deal because, if I'm not mistaken, the, the average home I, I, the figures in the book, but the average homeowner is seventy percent invested in their house, right? Like if your home value falls, your wealth is destroyed, and so your wealth is more insulated, or there's good reason to believe that your wealth is more insulated when you live in a wealthier neighborhood. So I think what's happening is everybody's trying to cr- everybody in the United States is trying to cram into the best possible neighborhood they can afford even though it might make more financial sense to buy a cheaper house and put that money in the stock market where uh, it would appreciate more quickly. quickly. Right. Well, you sort of bring that up in the book, right? That the wealthy become wealthy because they have diverse investments. Um, and so that it's, you yeah. know, if one thing happens, it doesn't just sort of bankrupt all of their investments. Um, but towards the end of the book, I think 
um, you sort of turn your eye to looking abroad, right? So I think it's it's easy to think, oh, you know, the U.S., like we used to be great, like what's happening now, but it's important to sort of put us in the world context. Um, and you mentioned here that the U.S. is rich but unequal. So, you know, I mean, I in my postdoc now, I'm studying European policies for aging. And I mean, basically everybody else is doing a lot more socially. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk about how you see that uh, benefiting other countries and not benefiting the U.S. or, you know, how the U.S. is um, using their policies to support um, people financially. So, Right. Well, you know, I think, well, I mean, there, there are problems with uh, very poor people falling through the cracks. But uh, the American system, you know, let's just say the average person who might be long-term insecure but can afford to cover their basic bills. America has a decent school system. It's got decent health care uh, in communities that aren't distressed. Um, it's average. You know, it's uh, – in America, you know, again, uh, I mean, uh, this book was – trying to be conversant with an American audience and Americans, at least on economic matters are and economic policy matters strike me as very extreme in their thinking, right? It's either all the government, the government's the bad guy or free market capitalism's the bad guy or like America's the best or America's the pits. Right. And uh, my whole thing with all of this book is, you know, listen, look at the data and see where things are and just be reasonable about, you know, your impressions of what's happened and how things are going. And if you look at the data, America's average for a rich country. It's nothing special. It's nothing bad. Right. The Amer- the rich countries, they all have good health care. They all have good university systems. Again, this is if you are not in one of America's distressed neighborhoods because, I mean, all, all societies have pockets of absolute poverty. Like um, uh, Canada has a terrible problem with its uh, native uh, population, right? Uh, and in America, there is a, a very large underclass. Uh, but for regular people, they're getting something good. But the problem is, is it's super expensive. And the threat of that cost just it puts people under the gun like if they lose their job if you know something happens uh they could easily be cut off so americans they're getting decent you know this system where governments don't do much and they purchase things on their own like americans are surviving it's not like living standards are bad here but they're not better than anybody else for all of the stress that americans are incurring and all the risk that they live with the Wonders of free market capitalism are not delivering better quality or lower prices. It's generating average results at really inflated prices. So I was hoping you could actually sort of like give us your big takeaways because I really felt like um, one of the, um, you know, the main points of the book is that sort of like we have to pay attention to healthcare, education and housing um, because they are pretty essential, right? Like, so they're sort of, I don't know, the building blocks of everything else. Um, so I was hoping you could sort of see, tell us, you know, like what you really, after doing all this research felt like were sort of the next steps or just like what we should be thinking about in terms of our, um, system and government programming. So the more that I, you know, think about and talk about the book, uh, especially with general audiences, like at the end of the day, the, the book intends to push uh, American audiences to just identify very specific problems 
that I I think uh, if we're if we're sober about how well the education system is functioning, how well this free market education system is functioning, how well this free market healthcare system is functioning, I think that uh, any reasonable person will realize that they're not they're not doing well this this free market system. Now that doesn't mean that capitalism isn't doing well, and I'm one of the main messages is that you know. Uh, is is to uh, argue for a, a practical approach where we don't make this about capitalism versus socialism or Republicans versus Democrats, but rather be practical and say, listen, the economy is not forming well in specific ways. And if we look at other countries, we see that they're doing a better job and maybe we can help ourselves by emulating successes abroad. And I think that uh, countries that heavily subsidized higher education and engage in price controls and subsidies in healthcare, I think I think they're doing better when all said and done. Uh, I, I I don't think that their governments are poor. I don't think that their economies are less dynamic. It's not like we have to throw away our freedom or we have to throw away all capitalism if we're going to talk about implementing you know single payer healthcare or free free higher ed. It's just, it's just in these specific areas, they're not doing well. So let's try something else, and let's try something that the you know people in other countries have already tested, and they seem to work pretty well. So it's just, it's sort of like at the end of the day, I think at its root, it's taking, uh, it's engaging a lot of partisan political arguments in the United States, and it's advocating for just sort of like a level-headed pragmatism, uh, uh, you know, and to you know just think soberly. Uh, about things. Cool. So was there anything else uh, you sort of wanted the reader to take away from your book or, you know, spark any sort of ideas for them? Uh, no, you know, like uh, this is not a book that is, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, making any big theoretical statements that I'm not uh, unpackaging and taking on Karl Marx or anything like that. I would say for, uh, for people who are listening and thinking about how they want to write, know that there are – you have colleagues in this discipline who are interested in just empirics, level-headed empirics and plain language explanations and uh, you know, and engaging social problems on the level that you don't need a doctorate to understand the explanation, like simple, straightforward explanations that anybody with an undergraduate can understand and you know, a lot of empirics. So you, you, sometimes there's some more flamboyant sort of big theorists or out there, things like that. And you might think that that's what everybody's like, but there's definitely, there's definitely room for empirics. There's definitely room for, you know, just level-headed, you know, low to middle range sensible conversations. And if you're a quant like I am, who, uh, who, who likes, like that stuff, I say go for it. You know, you'll find a market for your book, or you'll find a market for your research. If that's what you, th- if that's the type of thinking and discussing that you like to do. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you. Well, thanks again for being here to talk about your book today. Um, what are you working on now? So I have uh, a related uh, sort of. I, I'm on my sabbatical. I just got there. I'm going to go on my sabbatical next year, and uh, I am blending my two loves, which are. Uh, Canadian American well-being studies and uh, podcasting into uh, one project where I'm going to I'm hoping to have uh, a series of expert interviews run a podcast series where 
I interview experts on, you know, the, the, the details of studying, comparing and thinking about quality of life differences. And then I'm going to add that to a quantitative study of Canadian and U.S. Uh, living standards and personal finances. I'm going to go up to Canada, dig into their uh, spending and uh, personal finance data sets and take a look at the middle class and ask who's doing better, the Canadian or the American middle class. And the answer is they're doing better in different ways. So it's like in what ways and what do the two countries have to learn from each other? Cool. Those sound like cool projects. Well, thanks again for being here with us today. Uh, th- thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate uh, being on the show. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks again.